the first half of Marisa and I's ministry, we worked in church planting. And while we were working in church planting, um, I had a non-ministry job to actually pay the bills. I think I was being paid $50 a week uh, to be the youth pastor, worship pastor, small groups pastor, all those things, right? That's back in the day. And so the, the job that I got was ironically in construction. And I say ironically because those of you who know me well know that that is not exactly what I'm good at. So let me clarify when I say I worked in the real estate division of new construction. Uh, I was a sales uh, manager. And um, my brother Greg got all of those giftings in our family tree for construction. As good as he is, is how bad I am at all things building things. I'm not even good at demo day. Like I probably break it wrong, right? It's just not what I'm good at. But I did learn a couple things in that world. Most of what I learned is I just learned how to nod. See, there was, I was the sales and marketing manager and there was a construction manager and then we had the re, the local division manager above us and then the regional manager also officed out of our office. So usually the four of us would be together and we would walk up to a house that was under construction and the three of them all knew construction. And they would all walk up to something that looked perfectly normal and go, can you believe this? And I would go, right? Believe, don't, I, loud noises. Like I, I had no idea what they were mad at or looking at and I just learned how to nod and be like, yeah, the audacity. I don't know. And I was shocked, a little terrified, honestly, at how fast we we sold starter homes in South Atlanta. And those houses were built so quickly once they got going. Like, are we sure this will stand if it rains? I don't know for sure. But it was the process to get them started that wasn't nearly as fast. They would decide, based on the dimensions of the lot, these several floor plans can fit on that one. Let's build house B on this. And they had built house B a a ton of times, but they would then go through the work of prepping the lot. And it was a slow process that had multiple inspections. They would prep to pour the slab and there was multiple inspections. And man, if anything ever went bad on slab day, I knew avoid that neighborhood because there's a lot of mad people up the food chain who are going to be yelling at people. And once all of that was approved, Man, the house got built, right? And what we've been doing for for these first several weeks of a new year is kind of examining the foundation of who we are as a church culture. This is sort of our foundation inspection, if you will, because the reality is if you don't get the foundation right, then it's not likely that everything else is going to turn out the way you'd hoped. And so as we're re-looking at our foundation, we're, we're looking at the language that we've adopted as a church and and the reality is we, we've not chosen some new or, or radical idea. Our, our goal is not to be a trendy church. I think that's actually dangerous. We want to be a timeless church. And so we've adopted language that, that just the way we say it here is our mission is guiding people to life change in Jesus. And we don't use that language because we think that's better language than how anybody else says it. We just think that if you've actually come to Jesus, he will change your life. Now, we don't think we can produce life change, and we actually don't think we can be Jesus for you. But what we can do is walk together. 
That's why we adopted this language of guiding. We're, we're, just, we're just walking together towards the person of Jesus, and we're watching him change lives. Some of you, I look at your faces this morning, and like we've watched God heal marriages and set people free from addiction and give hope to the hopeless and heal grieving hearts. We've watched God do some crazy things, and literally, like your stories are what get me up on the discouraging or the lonely days. This is what we experience in Jesus is he will change our lives. Now, we don't change our lives in order to get to Jesus. We come to Jesus and watch him change our lives. That's the language that we've adopted here. And the way that we do that, the way that we experience the life of Jesus is in our core values. To know God intimately. To love God passionately. To share God intentionally. As we connect with each other authentically. And I'm grateful for our, our team of guys who've been speaking through these foundation inspections the last few weeks. Um, grateful for Hunter who really talked about life change last week. And then uh, my brother Greg talked a little bit about sharing God. We're going to start to unpack that more next Sunday. But then Garrett uh, and Pastor Lance talked about connecting with each other. And then we launched community groups this past Wednesday. And so if you are not connected to a community group, I want to invite you to do so. Uh, I was at a pastor's conference this week, and I heard a pastor say something very bold. And I was like, I don't know if I'm bold enough to say that, but I am bold enough to repeat him. He said, if you only come on Sundays, you're not actually part of this church. He said, this is the crowd. Community groups is the church. I thought, I don't know if I would say that. But I can repeat him. Sunday is the crowd. A circle is where it's the church. Now here's the thing. Jesus loves crowds. He preached to the crowds. He fed the crowds. He performed miracles for the crowds. But he gave his life for the church. He rose again to birth the church. And that's where you experience what it is to be church. Is when you're actually in a community where you share your prayer requests, you study the word together, you get to actually know somebody, not just the back of their head. That's where we really live out what it means to be church. So we encourage you to connect with a community group. If you have any questions, see us or look on the Church Center app. But these, these core values, these kind of structures around which God invites us into life change in his son. I want us to unpack that a little bit. We're going to look at a quick hybrid view of these core values from our core text as a church this morning. And then we're really going to park on loving God this morning. That'll be the heart of where we are. So please grab your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you today. Please keep that. Uh, And the reason why is because we have a really high view of this book, which you will hear us now say as we hold our Bibles up and declare our creed together. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Yes, I am aware that Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. We... Think of a lot of our church practice and and church mission and vision as maybe coming from the book of Acts or some of the letters to the churches in the New Testament. And I love 
this was not intentional. I wish I could say that, like, I had this strategy. Um, I love now looking back that this text has been the driving and foundational text because I love that our language predates the local church. Because this is not about, like, the trendy thing a church does. We think a follower of God begins to embody these core values. This text is one of the most popular passages of Scripture in the world. We're actually going to look at two, if you made a list of the most popular, well-known passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. We're going to look at two of those most well-known passages this morning. But this is one of them. This is prayed by people all over the world at least three times a day, still today, and has been for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's called the Shema, because the first word is hear. Hear, O Israel. Here in Hebrew is a form of Shema, so they just named it after the first word. A little bit of a lazy name, but we'll go with it like it's stuck. It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh. Remember when you see all the capital letters, that's not really the word Lord. That's the, the personal, intimate, revealed name of God, Yahweh, our God. Yahweh is one, which makes him unlike any God the world had ever heard of before. In, in this moment when God revealed himself in the beginning of his revelation to humankind, they only knew of small g gods, plural. There was no culture, there was no society in recorded history that only believed there was a one true God until God reveals himself to us. And this is the invitation to know God. To know God in an introductory way that is, yes, I've given my life to God. And to know God intimately, a growing, ongoing relationship with God. That's what it is to know God. And if we know God, then the next part flows naturally from that. I heard an author recently say, if there's a God, he's worthy to be loved. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I've quoted this before. One author said, if you don't love God, it's because you don't really know him. Because to know him is to love him. These words, and that will be our focus today. We'll, we'll circle back to this verse in a minute. But these words I command you today shall be on your heart Meaning this isn't just a thing we believe and go, yes, I think that's true. No, it actually consumes us. You shall teach them diligently. That's the idea of sharing God. To your children, talk of them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, lie down and when you rise. And this, this Shema is spoken. Remember it said, hear, O Israel. It's to a community. That idea of connecting with each other is that this isn't just the me and alone with a relationship with God, but he's called us corporately to know him, to love him, to share him, and to connect with each other. We focus this morning on loving God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And here's the struggle. Let's talk real. The struggle with the idea of loving God is that the definition of love in our culture is polluted. The definition of love is actually what the scriptures would call the opposite of love. (laughs) It's not self-seeking. It's not self-serving. Really what we've equated with love is like, 
I just can't help it. It happens to me. It's uncontrollable. It's just an emotion, which means when the emotion changes, I don't love anymore. It, it, really, our definition of love is like plus or like 2.0. I like it a lot. That must mean I love it. Here's the problem. There's a lot of things I used to like that I don't like anymore. And so if my definition to love is tied to the things I like, it's going to be really shallow. Based on circumstances of the moment or how I feel or if my taste buds change. I don't love you anymore. So I want to talk about real quick just just an overview of what a biblical definition of what love is. Which will be the springboard to where we'll really park today. But as we talk about loving God as a core value... The biblical definition of love, first of all, is intentional. Love, biblical love, is intentional. It is not accidental. Does that make sense? I can't help falling in love with anything. That's become the definition of love, right? This is the worst Elvis impersonation you've ever heard. But maybe it'll stick with you. That's a really horrible definition of love. Sorry, Elvis. I don't want to love chocolate. I just can't help it. I can't stop eating it. We love a movie because it made us cry or made us laugh or inspired us. Just can't help it. Loved it. When we're young, we... Love a boyfriend or a girlfriend because they just made us feel happy. And then we say we grew up. And we only love a spouse because you complete me. Until they don't anymore. And in, in some of the darkest moments that I've ever sat in as a pastor, I've heard people say through tears, I just couldn't help myself. When marriage vows have been broken and somebody says, I didn't mean for it to happen, it just happened. And I believe, not so much in an Elvis definition of love, but maybe a Boston definition of love, it's more than a feeling. Like the biblical definition of love is not less than feeling, for sure. We'll we'll talk some about that in a minute. But it's most certainly more. My feelings, when it comes to the rubric of how I navigate life, my feelings are the least trustworthy on the list. They're real, right? If the generation before us was like, ignore your feelings, this generation is saying, follow your feelings. And I'm telling you, that's the path that leads to destruction. And it's most certainly not the biblical definition of love. It's more than feelings. Love is intentional. We love because we get up today and decide we are going to set our hearts on God. We're going to love well the people that he's commanded us to love. Love is intentional. Number two, love is holistic. That idea that it's more than a feeling, well, what all is it? Well, it's consuming. It is heart, soul, and might. Jesus added mind to that, which is not an addition to that. The Hebrew understanding of heart was not the organ that pumps blood through millions of miles of arteries in our bodies. They had no concept of that in this Hebrew mindset. All they knew of the heart was it's the inner you, the, the, the seat of the mind and the will and the emotions. And then the soul, the, the breath, right? The Hebrew word for soul is synonymous with breath. It's this idea of the life source inside of us. 
And then our physical strength as well, that, that we actually love in action. That it's a consuming thing. Biblical love is not just emotional. Now, it does have to be emotional. And I'm just going to say this in the midst of this mostly Caucasian, hands-in-your-pockets church. And I would say if we sing songs that say we love God and doesn't look like we love God, we really do need to examine that the biblical definition of love, it does come out of us. It does involve our might. Like, it does get expressed. Amen. We are teaching another generation to follow us that to love God is actually about my convenience and my comfort zones. Mark Batterson said the most dangerous thing in Christianity today, hard stop. That's a big way to start a sentence. The most dangerous thing in Christianity today is not atheism or people who don't believe the Bible's true. The most dangerous thing is people who say it is true and are only half-heartedly interested. To know God is to love God with all of us. And to love God is to love God in a way that keeps taking territory in our lives. It's a growing love. What is love? It is intentional. It is holistic. And it is generous. This is where we're going to spend most of our time for the rest of the morning. True love costs us something. The problem with the modern definition of love is it's a love that takes. That is not a biblical definition of love. We even use that language in a crass way when we're talking about dating or 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 starting a relationship. We'll literally literally use the phrase, did you get you some? That's not the definition of love. That is the definition of lust. Lust takes Love sacrifices. It gives. So I told you we're going to look at the other, one of the other most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16. Thank you, Kelly Joe Smith, for allowing me to blow your mind with a grammar walkthrough of a verse in Scripture. It was, it was a great conversation. Many of you know this verse. You memorized it as a kid. If you're like me, you memorized it in the King James where we still had the word begotten in it like it belongs God so loved the world that he gave. I sometimes when I'm trying to understand a verse and I find that it's translated accurately from the original language, I will actually diagram it like old school diagram a sentence. You know what I'm talking about? They don't actually like teach that the same way anymore. I learned that. Like, do they still do it this way? They're like, no, we haven't done that in a long time. Um, Whatever. I was always a pretty poor math student, but English made sense to me. And sometimes it helps me to say, man, the English translation of this sentence, how does this flow? And so I went to her and I said, hey, I just want to make sure I'm right here. The subject of the sentence is God, right? She's like, duh. She didn't say duh. I'm just kidding. She did not say that. She said yes. Actually, she thought it was a trick question at first. What's the verb? There's two of them. God loved, God gave. Because that's what real love does. God loved. I think love is supposed to be intentional, but I do think giving might actually be accidental. 
If we love, giving will follow. It's the reason you and I have received his son. And so I want to talk about our generosity this morning as a piece of a broad puzzle of loving God. A piece of the broad puzzle of loving God is that we love God by giving. Simple question, why do we give? Because we love. That's what love does. It really is that simple. We don't give out of guilt. We don't give so that God won't be mad at us. We don't give because we gotta. We give because we love. It's transformed us. As a matter of fact, we might not be any more like God doing anything else other than giving. So if we love, we give. And then what? Because here's what's fascinating. If, in, in the human idea, right, if I, I don't have my phone in my pocket, so don't get excited. If I take out my iPhone and I give it to Jackson Flory, who loves being the center of attention, that's twice in three weeks. You've gotten a shout out. I love you. Don't leave. If I gave him my iPhone, I would be missing an iPhone, Right? I don't have it anymore. Here's the crazy thing about the economy of God. What happens when we give? What's the then what of giving? You know what it is? It's the blessed life. (laughs) When I give, I find out that I have received. It doesn't make any sense. The math doesn't work. I told you I was never good at math. I don't know how one minus one equals three. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Which is saying a lot, because it is awesome to receive. Anybody? Like, I love getting stuff. It's great. I'm a fan. Right? And Jesus says, you know what's even better? It's to give. And every one of you in this room who are parents can think of tangible memories when you experience the truth of this text. I've received some great gifts from my family. But there is nothing like watching their eyes light up when we have strategized and lied to them. I mean, like. Listen, it is wrong to tell a lie unless it's leading up to a surprise. And then I'm convinced Jesus is okay with it. How is it possible that it's more blessed to give than to receive? How in the world does that work? Because God, when he spoke everything into existence, spoke into the DNA of the universe that there is blessing in giving. A cell that is healthy can't help but multiply. It is in the DNA of the universe. Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now here's the thing. This verse speaks oddly to me. I am not... A farmer, I don't own a barn, 
so I'm, my barn being full, actually, I don't know what that means. I mean, my garage is a mess. And as a neat freak, if you come to my house and smash a bottle of wine, I will not feel blessed. I'll be like, clean that up. But it's this language of provision, of abundance. Because I know as much about farming as I know about construction, but I'm pretty sure a full barn is better than an empty one. What happens when love gives? It gives more. It's the blessed life. Some verses that if you've been around the church for a long time, you've probably heard these verses. Malachi 3, will man rob God? Sounds terrifying. Yet you are robbing me. You say, how we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, the place of worship, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. The only time in the scriptures that God says, I double dog dare you. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you, here's that word again, a blessing. Until there's no more need, there is a promise of a blessed life when love overflows in generosity. And I think some of us are waiting for the blessing because we think then we'll start giving. And that's not how the math works. Love gives. If there's a God, he's worthy to be loved. Let's get nuts and bolts for, for just a few minutes. How much does God call us to give? Let's talk actual, like, math. What I put on the screens is 10% plus, and we're, we're going to talk about tithing for just a minute. And for those of you who are anti-tithing, you're like, okay, now it's time for me to take a nap. Give me just a minute, okay? Uh, frequently, I, I pe- will have people ask me, what, what's your view on tithing? And so I'm, I'm going to share that with you today. I haven't talked about this in years. As a matter of fact, a lot of the times when we talk about generosity, I ask Lance to preach on that for two reasons. It's a passion of his heart, and he's good at it. He's helped a lot of you with your finances. And, because I don't want to. No, for real. I don't enjoy talking about money. But I don't not enjoy talking about money because I don't think it's best for you. I don't enjoy talking about money because I think people have a terrible attitude about it. There's this, there's this idea. And there's some pastors who've given the talking about money a really bad name. I get it, bro. I've, I've seen the whole plea for the airplane. Like, I watched the video. Right? Um, and if you haven't seen it, don't Google it. It's, you'll convert to atheism. Um, there's pastors who've given it a, a, a bad rap. I, I get that. But we don't talk about money, I think, probably enough here because we don't want to send that message. The reality is Scripture teaches a principle. It's called the tithe. And the word tithe literally means tenth, which literally means 10%. Like it's an actual easy math to do. Move the decimal one place. It's easy math. It's not easy obedience, but it's easy math. And I think that's where the story starts. And maybe you'd be like, bro, isn't that Old Testament law? Not really. The idea of the tithe was actually introduced before the law was given. And then the law was given, and yes, the tithe was part of the law. More than just the tithe was. We'll talk about more than that in a minute. 
But then Jesus came and talked about it again. The one who came to fulfill the law and set us free from the obligations of the law reinforced tithing. And then we have the privilege now of being 2,000 years after the birth of Christ. And so we have church history to look at and say they've practiced the tithe ever since. So I, I do believe that the tithe is the biblical standard. Now, I have great friends who disagree with me. They're like, nope, I don't think tithing is required anymore. And I technically actually agree with that sentence. Because nothing's required other than the blood of Jesus Christ to save me. I don't tithe because it's required. I tithe because I believe giving is commanded by God, even in the New Testament. And I'm trying to figure out how much. And I think that's the principle where it starts. Now, here's the thing. Some people will say tithing is an Old Testament principle, and now we're under grace. So that's no longer the principle. Um, if you want to go down that road, let's go down that road. Jesus, outside the law, raised the bar on everything. So if we're saying, nope, it's not 10%, here's Jesus' math, okay? Jesus would say, the law says don't commit adultery. But if you look with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. Jesus would say, the law says don't murder. But if you have hate in your heart, you've already committed homicide. Now, he stopped there. I'm glad he didn't say, you say don't tithe. I'm telling you, it's 79%. Like, he could have just gone crazy there. And he didn't. So if we're saying, no, no, I want to follow the way of Jesus. I think that raises the bar, not lowers it. And it's interesting. The, the concept of the tithe has actually not been pushed back until the very modern church. In the wealthiest nation in the history of humankind... We're the generation that's going, no, that's too much. I I believe that it's the tithe. So look look again at Malachi 3, verse 8. He says we're robbing him. How? In tithes and contributions. So tithe, 10%. Contribution. We would call that an offering. Spirit moved on my heart. It's above the 10%. He's led me to do that. Here's the thing. I actually don't think tithing, man, I've never heard any modern preacher say what I'm about to say. And that always scares me because I want to stand behind smarter men than me. I don't, pause. So all these smart guys keep saying, use the language of generosity, not giving. Giving puts people's walls up. Generosity is a more acceptable word, right? Here's the struggle. I actually don't think tithing is generous. I just think it's obedient. The contributions, the offerings over the top is where we might step into the realm of generosity. When, when Maurice and I were dating, before we even got all that serious, we had a conversation about tithing and just said, hey, let's never fight about that, right? It belongs to the Lord. End of story. Done. And we've never not tithed unless we did the math wrong, which if I was ever having a part in the conversation, is very possible. And then above that, we've said, Let, let's, we also want to do more. And so in our household, tithe's never been a conversation. But above that, our first contribution, our first offering is to local missions in our local church. We want our dollars to go around the globe. 
So we support our missions fund here every year. And then above that, there's some causes that really have a hold of our heart, and we give to those in addition to that. We give special gifts based on the way the Spirit leads. By the way, we give all of that through our local church because we believe in the authority of the local church. So we let our church, we designate where they go. The IRS tells the church they have to send it there. Don't worry. But we give even those designated gifts through our local church. Speaking of which, look at Malachi 3.10. Bring your full tithe into the storehouse. Again, it's just not been a debate until recent from people who want to give less. The storehouse in our context is representative of the place where you worship. The full tithe belongs to what you call your church. If you're visiting here and you still are a member at another church, please don't tithe here. You never thought you'd hear a Baptist preacher say that. I think it belongs where you worship. So I don't think the tithe goes to my compassion causes. That's a contribution. Right? I think the 10% goes to the general fund of our local church. For our family. I've debated whether or not to say this. I am not. There's, there's plenty of weeks that I, I preach things that we do not perfectly fulfill. I'm growing in my faith just like you. I've not arrived. I'm not the ninja Christian. But I will tell you, this is just something that as a family, we dug our heels in and said, this will not be a conversation. Ironically, this is the part I wasn't sure I was going to tell you. I walked over to my office this morning and our giving statement for 2023 was on the desk. Which are going to be emailed to you this year to save in postage and paper waste. If you need a paper copy, let us know. We're trying to be better stewards with God's resources. But she printed mine out because Monica likes us better than you. Um, So it was sitting there when I walked in this morning. And I thought, man, I hope the math is right. I did. Like I really had like a little moment of like, what if we messed up this year and I fixed the breach of the sermon? So I went to the back page and I did the math real quick. And I will just tell you, we were obedient this year, I'm not asking you to do something that we're not sacrificially doing as well. I don't have near as much in retirement as I wish I did. But we did give 10% to our local church this year. And we gave 5% more to missions and compassion causes. And I, there's zero brag in that. There's just real life in that to say, I think that's just obedience. Here's the struggle. I I don't like preaching about money, not just because people get the wrong idea about money, but I also struggle with it because what I know is some people are really struggling just to pay the bills. And it sounds tone deaf. And and so I want to speak into that tone, tone deafness and just say, I read all the statistics of credit card debt. I was in real estate. I know what it is to be house poor. Sadly, I was a part of what caused the crash in 2008. We were doing loans that we probably shouldn't have for people, right? Here's what I would just tell you. We are here to walk with you through that. Part of life change is learning to be obedient with our finances. We love you. We're for you. We want to help you. And by we, I don't mean me because I'm not good at it. 
But Trevor literally is an actual financial planner. And Lance is phenomenal with this stuff and has helped a ton of families, including some of you in this room. We are here to walk with you towards financial freedom because we think that the blessed life is way better than the bondage life. So if you can't afford it, we're here to help. Baby step towards that. I have a duty, though, to say this. Are you sure you can't afford it? Here's why I'm saying that. All the experts were nervous about this past Christmas. In the midst of a recession, leading up to an election cycle, in the midst of the unknown and job loss, we had record consumerism at Christmas. Record. Horrifyingly, a ton of that was the new version of layaway. It was local store debt. This past Christmas shopping cycle was evidence that we tend to spend money on what we want to spend money on, regardless of discomfort or actual margin. So we would love to walk with you in that. Love you lots. Now let me talk about this, because I I think this is actually even more important and helps redirect us. When do we give first? People will often ask me, should I tithe on the net or on the gross? And I'm like, if you have to ask. Right? So I, personally, I think there's freedom in that. Whatever you think, that's between you and the Lord. I want to tithe based on the number before the government gets their piece. But whatever. I mean, if just people would tithe on net, our budget would look wildly different. We would be able to do much more. I think the more important question is not how much do we give, but when do we give? And the scripture teaches the idea of that's the first thing we do, is give to the Lord and give to causes that advance the kingdom. That passage from Proverbs chapter 3 that talked about the wine spilling everywhere and the barns being full talked about first fruits, this this, uh, language of harvesting the first things that come in that we would honor the Lord with them. And what that means is, for me to do that, that means I have to prioritize him first. And that's the whole point of this. Hear me. The point of giving isn't giving. It's reordering our hearts. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. It's us saying, God, I want you to be first. He's inviting us to rearrange our whole life around him because he wants to be first, because he deserves to be first, because he knows that only he can satisfy the longings of our hearts. And here's what I've watched. I've watched when we are obedient with generosity, he shows us himself more. The blessed life isn't always financial. Sometimes it is. Again, I'm sharing another recent story I sure hope it doesn't sound like a brag fest. I'm just telling you this is what God does. God impressed on Maurice and I's heart to do a gift year end <laughs> that started with a lack of faith. <laughs> I thought we were going to have to like close the gap on the Gary giving because I didn't think the Lord was going to provide the way that he did. That's just the honest thing. And then as we watched God do what God did with, I mean, good grief. It's just amazing. We still felt impressed to give a sacrificial offering 
Here's the thing about that offering. Her car was in the shop at, at that time. And we thought it was going to be well over $1,000 to get it fixed. And it didn't make financial sense to give a significant year-end gift to this church when our car was in the shop and we still didn't know how much it was going to cost. But we were simply obedient because God's proven himself so redonkulously over and over and over again that we're like, we're just going to trust him. So the, the week after we gave that gift, it really shouldn't have surprised us when we got a text from the mechanic that said, your bill's $125. Simple fix. Found it. And that's just the story from last month. The reality is many of you would be like, yes, I have ten stories like that as I've seen the Lord provide over the years. That's just what he does. As we step into that obedience, he just shows himself so true we can't help but trust him more. And here's what's crazy. Love overflows into generosity, and then he does a crazy thing, and you can't help but love him more. Did you follow that? It's amazing. There's nothing else in creation like that. That's the beauty of God's math. I do want to say this about giving first. Um, and I ask you, please hear my heart in this. I, I, I have shed tears over what God did with Project Gara this year. I'm profoundly grateful. And I have no idea, for the most part, who gave what. Some of you told me what you gave. Uh, some of you gave a special gift that Monica accidentally told me because she was so excited. Um, for the most part, I don't look at who gives what because I don't ever want to treat you different. If your family's in crisis, I don't ever want my flesh to think, well, you're not even supporting. I just want to be there for you. And I don't trust my flesh. That's just, so I don't know if you tithe or not. I don't know if you give to missions or not. But I think I know that not everyone who gave to Project Garrett is tithing. And what I would say is, praise God for what he did. Just imagine if we were being consistently obedient, what he could do. And I would add a layer to that and say what we've asked is that our first offering above the tithe is to our missions program. So, for instance, these missionaries that we've done special projects for, before we did the one-time project, we made a commitment to support them monthly, to put food in their kids' bellies, like to support the work of the ministry. Our local vision mission is doing the exact same thing here in, in the local community, serving families both in this church and around this church. Those things come through the consistent monthly gifts to our missions program. And I say that because... That's the one piece of our financial puzzle that's not recovered since COVID. Our missions giving is in a four-year decline for monthly support. Project giving is awesome. And we're taking trips again. I love it. We're going to talk about one next week. Praise God. But we're trying to partner with these ministries. Does that make sense? And so that consistent monthly gift that we'll talk more about in the coming weeks, like we do every February... I would just ask you to consider trusting the Lord first and seeing how he'll multiply that for the sake of his kingdom. One quick kind of commercial before we end this morning, and that is how do we give? Like, how do we do that? 
We've tried to make that as easy as possible. Um, there's offering envelopes in the back, and you can give on our website. But we've been talking to you the last several weeks about the Church Center app. Uh, we've asked you to download that. We've given you those instructions. If you're struggling with that, just come see us. We'd love to help you with that. But it gives you a way to give in an incredibly convenient way right from your phone. Additionally, if you go to our giving platform, you can just set up a recurring monthly gift. One of the reasons that Maurice and I gave in the last year, what we committed to give in this last year, is because we set it up. Like, that's how first it is. Before we actually got a paycheck, we said, this is what we're going to do, and we set it up as a recurring gift. It's the first thing that comes out. And I say this often, setting up a recurring gift might not be joyful giving, but it it's joyful to us, <laughs> right? Like, I don't even think about it a lot of times. I'm like, oh, I, I get the receipt. And I'm like, oh, praise the Lord. Yes, we did that. <laughs> I forgot. We've set that up because we've just predetermined this is what we believe is obedient. And this is what we believe is generous. And we've watched the Lord provide. God does not, and, and this, is, this is how I'll close. And this is one of those things that I hope this makes as much sense coming out of my mouth as it does inside my brain. God does not invite us to give because he needs anything from us. You follow me? Like God isn't like, oh, I hope they're generous. What am I going to do? Sometimes I know pastors can sound that way. I probably sounded that way about Project Era. Oh, please give. God invites us to give because he loves us. And he knows that that's where we experience his favor and his blessing. And we watch miracles happen. We watch math not make sense. Like he's inviting into that, us into that for our good. He loves us so much that he invites us to trust him. God loves you so much that he wants to set you free from loving any lesser thing other than him. He wants to strip away materialism. God loves you so much he wants to set you free from the bondage of debt. God loves you so much that he wants to birth in you more self-control. So that Amazon is in your outlet on a stressful day. He loves you so much that he wants to invite you to be part of kingdom investments that will outlive you. I don't know. I don't know if you understand this. That story that my brother told a couple weeks ago about the lady who gave her life to Jesus and is now married and serving in the church. Like, I believe there's coming an actual day, like a day, day, like today, day, where every single one of you who have sown into that ministry will stand before the throne of the living God and share in an inheritance of a changed life forever. How incredible is that? You're like, but dude, I only gave five bucks. I'm telling you, I think we'll, you'll be there on that day and God will be like, thank you for the five dollars. Look what I did with it. I think that's how it works. We, we've had mission programs in the past where kids have walked up to me with a little change baggie. I'm telling you, man, that kid's going to be in front of me in the line. I don't think there's a line. But if there's a line, they're going to be in front of me in the line. We aren't given out of some duty. Or some demand or some law. We are invited into an eternal kingdom investment. 
And God doesn't owe us anything for that, and yet he still chooses to bless us when we obey. How great is he? He's just inviting us to experience his love. Which means this all comes back to, to know God is to love him. And the more we love him, the more he reveals himself, and the more we love him. Which begins first with a relationship with God. Do you know for sure today that you know him? Are you trusting him in the areas of your life? Baby stepping in obedience, one step at a time, experiencing life change in Jesus.